Budapest. It's the capital, the beautiful capital of Hungary. It's a cold winter's evening. The air is very crisp. I'm walking along the Danube, this beautiful, expansive river that's so fundamental to this part of Europe. You can hear the cars in the background. It's quite a busy evening, a busy thoroughfare. Uh, and I'm looking out into the water. And as a sailor, I'm sort of reminded of the power of, of water, the power of the sea, the power of rivers. And how beautiful it can be when you view that river or that, um, that ocean, that sea, that lake from the certainty, the safety of a boat. Or when you look out to sea, we've all had this experience, or many of us had, when you're on the shore, the waves are crashing, and you're looking out to that expansive sea, that complete unknown, that uncertainty. And in that moment, you feel the, the beauty and the awe and wonder of that uncertainty, that expansiveness. But had you actually been viewing from the perspective of being inside the sea, from no safety, from no purchase, how the meaning completely changes, how scary and overwhelming and threatening the exact same body of water comes to be. And this is true about uncertainty itself. Uncertainty can be like the sea, tremendous and full of beauty, full of possibility, or deeply threatening, um, scary, uh, a source of tremendous fear. And what's the difference? What's the contextual difference from those two different perspectives? I'd suggest it's from the position from which you view the uncertainty. And this is where I bring in the concept of the sandbar, that what's essential for engaging with uncertainty is to have a certainty from which to step. Uh, if you're just treading water, eventually you're going to get exhausted and you'll drown. But when you have a sandbar, a place to come back to when you're tired, to rest, to maybe even still be in the water, and then to go out again and swim again, that's when suddenly that, that uncertainty of the sea becomes a wondrous and wonderful thing. So we're going to talk about the importance of sandbars in this journey into adventure that we've been on along this podcast of expanding your perception. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I'm 500 kilometers into my second turning left. I'm heading down the west coast from Seattle on my modern bone shaker. Not as far or as fast as I'd like, but very happy to be as far as I am. I'm getting in shape as I go, but now I've paused in smoke actually. The winds have shifted northeasterly, which is unusual for the Oregon coast at this time of year. It seems that experiencing the atypical is typical in our current world. Smoke from millions of combusted trees east of the west coast is floating out to sea. The air is thick with their cremated remains, which is bad for the lungs and worse for the soul. Air quality today is hazardous, according to the US AQI rating of 303. So I'll adapt and remain indoors until the winds change to normal. Remember normal? Adventures are not like a holiday. Holidays are planned to minimize risk. We consider the different possible destinations. We choose, we go, we stay and return. 
And yet experiments show that when we return, we are often more stressed than before we left. Why? Because we also expect. We expect a holiday to be just that, a day or time that will be so good as to be holy. When your brain expects, it measures the consequences of the perceived experience and compares it to what was anticipated. You're not comparing realities, but one perception with another. Hindsight with foresight. When your expectations are high as holy, well, you're going to be disappointed, inevitably. And when your brain is disappointed, it's not an arbitrary passing thing. It encodes it as pain, a brain pain that can become somaticized. In other words, manifested as bodily pain, but without the endorphin release that one experiences when the body is physically insulted. This is especially true if you're biased towards narcissism or psychopathy. Such personalities find stressful holidays even more disappointing than those who have less of these traits. But you don't have to be pathological to feel the pain of unmet expectations. This is because your brain is wired to expect all the time. You're inherently and indeed necessarily prejudiced. Your brain prejudges every second of every day. Doing so enabled your ancestors to survive during evolution. The better they expected, prejudged or generalized, the more likely you were able to come into existence and in doing so engage in the world with the same needs and abilities they had. Wisdom then is not about removing prejudice, which is impossible, but refining, adapting and updating it in a matter that improves your world and more importantly, the world around you. Even now as I write, you'll be wondering where I'm going. Your brain is even unconsciously guessing each word from just the first few letters it hears. So much so that when writing, I don't even have to put all the letters to a word in order for you to read the word. And it's impossible to escape from this, which means you can never really be present. If by present you mean be in the moment, devoid of the future or past, since you are the personification of their codependent relationship. So while you cannot exist in a moment that is devoid of past or present, you can be alive in the moment. By actively observing the ecology within you, noticing the predictive meanings from past ecologies that your brain is projecting onto its future world, by becoming an observer of yourself in the moment of perception, you can learn to see yourself see. It's a skill to notice the beauty of your perceptions as you perceive them but also the rubbish ones, since some of your perceptions are also hurtful or unkind. Seeing yourself see, negatively or positively, is an essential step to seeing differently. But like all practiced skills, it requires a context in which to exercise it. That context is what I call not A, the very place you evolve to avoid, the unknown, the uncertainty. Imagine choosing the unknown of, say, hiking to Deer Lake in Washington State's Olympic Peninsula and sleeping amongst unseen bears and mountain lions on your own. It's getting dark. Every nuance of light, every sound will have a possible meaning for your brain. The most dominant prejudice will be bear. You will feel fear. Your respiratory and heart rates will elevate. And that's a very good idea. Because in this moment, you are facing not only a potential real reality, but also a perceptual one. In seeing yourself see it, however, you will have the opportunity to respond differently, an option that didn't exist until this very moment. The question then becomes, what do you do? 
Does your fear create panic or vigilance? One narrows while the other expands. This was in fact the experience of a dear friend on her chosen adventure just a few days ago. An adventure that was an active attempt to catalyze not confidence, but courage. Not to be without fear, but to be with the fear, meaningfully and with agency. By actively choosing to create a context of uncertainty, you are choosing to disrupt the old ecologies of the past and in doing so, create the true freedom of choice. This is what an adventure does. It shepherds you into a new state of being and it needs certainty to do so. Yes, certainty is essential for uncertainty, which brings me to the point of this episode. Adventures require a sandbar. The coast of Oregon has hundreds of miles of sandy beaches that are punctuated by towering monoliths such as Cannon Beach's Haystack Rock, which I cycled past just a few days ago. It's the third largest monolith in the world, though no one knows the source of this claim, nor how to reconcile it with the fact that the one in Pacific City, just 100 kilometers to the south, also called Haystack Rock, is a good deal taller and three times heavier, at three million tons it's estimated. Each monolith is awe-inspiring in its scale and isolation, each a geological sculpture shaped by nature's artists, moving water. Amongst the monoliths are gorgeous, often shifting sandbars, as a sailor, I know that the sea doesn't care about you. It's a place that unites deep beauty with deeper risk. Sandbars are bridges into that risk. They take you out hundreds of meters into its vastness while enabling you to remain only waist deep in it. They are a physical and perceptual space of safety from which one can swim, become exhausted and return. If you've listened to the other episodes in this series, you'll know that I have three gorgeous gremlins. Their names are Zana, Misha and Theo. As their papa, I'm not their boat, because to be so would deprive them of what they love, which is to swim. So instead, I try my best to be their sandbar. I will not let them drown. And when they get tired of swimming, they can stand here, feel the sea, and rest, then swim again, each time swimming further away, eventually becoming strong enough and self-honest enough to swim to the other side to start their own adventure. Love, then, is a sandbar which doesn't protect the one you love from risk, but enables them to take it, and in doing so, embrace the uncertainty of themselves with courage and agency. When a young child feels love and trust, research has shown that they will adventure further from the parents, not closer. They are practicing living. They are swimming away and getting stronger in doing so. They are also becoming inoculated from the fear of future uncertainties from which you will not be there to protect them, and learning how to thrive within it. They are expanding their perception of who they are. Sandbars can come in many forms. One is Burning Man. And the last week, had it not been for COVID, I would have been among the many of its deviants. As many of you will know, Burning Man is a festival that takes place the week before Labor Day in the Nevada desert. It unites art, music, dance, theater, architecture, technology, conversation, and nearly 70,000 diverse human beings. Costumes are ubiquitous and at times completely lacking, though often with body paint, which is one of my favorite costumes for purely neuroscientific reasons, of course, since the painted body confuses the brain's visual cortex. It's a city-sized circus of free-form creativity. Picture a giant pirate ship sailing along on wheels, touring you through the world's largest human art experience under the heat of the desert sun. The art in its city explodes on the desert floor, then vanishes 
seven days later, leaving absolutely no trace, an essential part of the Burning Man ethos. In 2014, on a windy day midway through the week, I was riding my bike and getting reacquainted with the city. The familiar desert dust swirled, silting me and my goggles in a familiar fine layer of beige. I ended up in a camp of people from a town on a southern edge of the Midwest of the United States. There I met a person I'll call Dave. This was Dave's first burn, and he said it was turning out to be a transformative experience. What does true transformation look like, I wondered. Of course, no one really knows because it's different for every person, which is why so many people at Burning Man hungrily chase it all week. The more I talked to Dave, though, the more I realized he really was undergoing a deep shift in his perceptions of self and other. Because what Dave had was a level of self-honesty that can be hard to find. He was a computer programmer from a place with fundamentalist religious values and a narrow outlook on what was socially acceptable. In his town, you either learned to fit in or you were ostracized. Dave had learned to fit in and be quote-unquote normal, i.e. contextually average. The business casual attire he wore at Burning Man reflected this, but his home had clearly curtailed the possibilities of his life, his curiosity, and his imagination. Yet here he was. It was his decision to be there, intention enacted, and the questioning manner he had brought with him that mattered. But what was also fundamental to his experience was the place to which he was coming. It is the love, the sandbar, Burning Man, and the people therein that made his adventure possible. As we stood there in his camp, he told me that the little green plastic flower that I saw stuck behind his ear, perhaps the, probably the most least flamboyant adornment in Burning Man history, had provoked an epic struggle inside him. He had sat in his tent for two hours that morning, weighing whether or not to wear the flower. It had forced him to confront a complex host of assumptions in his mind about free expression and masculinity, aesthetic beauty, and social control. In the end, he gave himself the permission to question these assumptions, symbolically manifested in a plastic flower. And he stepped out of his tent into the public world for all to see. In doing so, he answered an invitation offered and met by his fellow burners. He seemed both pleased and uncomfortable, and in my eyes far more courageous than most of the people out there on the Nevada desert that day in search of something powerful. Deviating doesn't require being naked, upside down, balancing on top of a 100-foot pole, though it can look like that too, which is also quite wonderful. For him, it was wearing a plastic flower behind his right ear. No more was needed. As a neuroscientist, I knew that his brain had changed. Ideas and actions previously out of reach would now be available if he was willing to question his assumptions and doing so create a new, unknown train of wondering. As a person, I was moved. This is what transformation looks like. Deviation towards oneself. To deviate is to be oneself. So simple, so complex. While many are now missing their sandbar in the desert, its principles of radical self-reliance within the context of love and care can be relived each day, especially in a culture that is experiencing increasing unhealthy conflict. Nothing interesting ever happens without active doubt, yet doubt is often disparaged in our culture because it is associated with indecision, a lack of confidence, and therefore weakness. We experience this biased perspective in our political discourse all the time, to our detriment. Which is why in this series of adventure and uncertainty, I've argued exactly the opposite. That in many, if not most contexts, to doubt yet do with humility 
like Dave, is possibly the strongest thing one can do, to embrace the superhero strength of not knowing with care. But superhero strength doesn't just happen in isolation. We need a sandbar to pause upon, a place of certainty from which to step into uncertainty, where we can be held and our hearts touched, a place, a person, a love that enables us to wonder, wander, and return with stories of adventure that expand our minds and the minds of those who hold us. Today, on my continued venture of turning left, I'm seeing myself see the smoke around me, not as a frustrating constraint, but as an opportunity to sit and speak with you. In doing so, I'm deeply aware of the sandbar upon which I'm pausing. There are currently 625 separate fires burning in California across 1.4 million acres, a further 230,000 acres across Oregon and yet more in Colorado, Wyoming, and other western states. Thousands of homes are gone. The home of a personal dear friend has been reduced to a chimney stack, memories, and disbelief. More acreage has been burnt in August than was burnt all of last year combined, and the 2020 fire season hasn't even started yet. When the Santa Ana winds blow and the Diablos start raging in October, even more is likely to burn. So while I might be on my adventure of turning left into my personal unknown in parallel with the fires, like all fires, literal and metaphorical, those who are closest are often those who are in service. In this case, thousands of firefighters and their supporters up and down the West Coast and across the world, they have chosen lives that are in service of. They are society's sandbars running as fast as possible with sirens blaring towards the flames so that the rest of us can run or cycle away. They are moths in thinly protective coats drawn to the danger of the unknown, not for the sake of it, not for thrills, not because they are so-called rebels or free spirits, but because they are responding to someone else's fear, our fears. They do it for you. They do it for me. We won't know them, and they won't know us. So f here are five names. Thomas Duffy, Diana Jones, Brian Stephen Smith, Brian Anderson, Jose M. Perez. All five were here four weeks ago. They are no longer. True giving is real. Sandbars can take many forms. A friend, parent, true lover, emphasis on the true of that lover, leader of an organization or its volunteers, an open-minded pastor, a politician, or even an ephemeral city in the desert, as well as many other forms. It's possibly one of the greatest gifts you can give, not only to another, but to our own brain and body. For in improving the well-being of another, you actually improve the well-being of yourself, and in doing so, become more dapper and optimistic. Indeed, as my dear friend Dwayne Michael says, we are most happy, not when we are most loved, but when we are most loving. So following the choices of the firefighters in our midst, each of us can be a sandbar in another person's life. You too can be the place from which another person feels certain enough to take risk in order to expand their perception. In doing so, you too will expand. I'd actually be grateful to hear how a sandbar has enabled you to embrace uncertainty or how you have been the sandbar for another. So if you would like to share that with us, please send an email to hello at labofmisfits.com. So thank you very much for listening. 
My name is Bo Lotto, and thank you for listening to my Expanding Perception podcast, which will be an ever-expanding story of the neuroscience of uncertainty and how we can not just cope with it, but expand because of it. My aim in creating this podcast is really to try to help you increase your perceptual intelligence, which will give you the ability to make the decisions and take the actions that will foster a more loving, adaptable, and optimistic life in an increasingly uncertain world. My hope is that this podcast will help you in your journey to self-honesty, which is one of the hardest journeys we can take in our life, since it's a never-ending practice and might take you to places that you might want to avoid. But if you have the courage and compassion to go on this journey, you'll find that it's worth it, and it will create true authenticity in your way of being. A deeper consideration of many of the ideas in the Expanding Perception podcast can be found in my book, Deviate, The Creative Power of Transforming Your Perception. You can also follow me and my Lab of Misfits on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also take part in experiments on the Lab of Misfits website that we've designed just for you to help you better understand who you are. So thank you, and I hope